Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, October 16th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. All right, let's jump right in today. Brad, Taika Waititi has a new Marvel superhero movie coming up that we know about called Thor Love and Thunder. What is the latest on this project? Well, we already knew that Taika Waititi was coming back to direct after knocking it out of the park with Thor Ragnarok. And we have also have word that he'll be returning uh, in front of the camera, uh, or at least through uh, his voice, as Korg, who is the uh, rock uh, character. I believe the species is, is Kornin. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that character will be back. It was a big part of um, Thor Ragnarok, a very funny character. Also had a, um, a small part in Avengers Endgame, and it was clear that he'd been hanging out with Thor for a while. So it makes sense that, uh, you know, he's still buddy-buddy with him in Thor Love and Thunder. And I'm, uh, you know, always happy to see Taika Waititi come back, uh, and with this character especially, because he's just such a just a soft-spoken uh, kind of character, despite his big rock body. 
and uh, he yeah he was just hilarious. I assume this means that Meek will be back as well, who is his like weird I... little alien buddy with like knife hands or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I hope so because he you know he suddenly survived at the end of Thor Ragnarok, even though Korg thought he was dead and was still carrying him around. Uh, and he was sitting right next to Korg on the couch uh, in Thor's sh- shack in New Asgard on Earth. So hopefully he will be back as well. Yeah, I think, um, so I did this big interview with uh, one of the visual effects guys who worked on Avengers Endgame, and um, he, he was pointing out to me, I, I totally missed it when I saw it in theaters a couple times, but Korg and Meek are like running around on that battlefield during that huge end battle, uh, like fighting off people. It's like, there's so much happening in Avengers Endgame, especially in that that final battle scene, that it's, it's tough to catch those guys, but they are there in that movie, so you can uh, freeze frame it and, and track them down if you want to. Um, what else do we know about Thor Love and Thunder? We know that Natalie Portman is coming back to reprise her role, right? Is there anything uh, specific about her her character or her storyline that we may have learned recently? So maybe or maybe not. Um, so the, the, the idea of Jane Foster becoming Thor comes from Jason Aaron's uh, comic arc called The Mighty Thor. Uh, Jane Foster, um, you know, is able to wield Mjolnir. She basically becomes a female version of Thor. Uh, and in one of the, uh, in Jason Aaron's comic book arc, Jane Foster also happens to have breast cancer. And so, she, and she gets chemotherapy treatments because of it. Uh, but whenever she becomes the goddess of thunder, the hammer uh, basically rids her body of any impurities. And that includes chemotherapy. Uh, since that's, that's a drug that goes inside your body and is supposed to kill uh, or at least put the cancer cells at bay. And so in order to be, you know, Thor, she has to rid her body of the stuff that is supposed to be protecting her from cancer. Hmm. Uh, and and so it's it's an interesting storyline. It's it's kind of it makes the the comic book that much more powerful. We won't necessarily dive into how, you know, how that ends or how that, uh, you know, um, the story evolves from that. And Tycho was actually asked about whether or not that storyline would be included. And he would not confirm or deny, but not necessarily in a secretive way. It sounds like maybe they just haven't figured out exactly uh, for sure how they're going to approach that. Because mm-hmm. uh, Taika recently appeared on um, on Jimmy Kimmel, which is where he revealed that he was coming back as Korg. And he said that he had only just recently uh, completed like the second draft of the script. And this movie doesn't even come out until November 5th, 2021. So they're, they're obviously still in the early stages of getting the story together and figuring out what to do. And so... There, he even says like the, these uh, things change throughout the shoot, and you know we'll might get rid of the storyline where she has it, or we'll change it to something else that maybe isn't cancer, or maybe she just won't have it. So uh, again, no confirmation or denial, but it's it is some a storyline that uh, Taika said that he really did love, which may you know put it in the on the side of you know possibly making it into the movie. Yeah, and Marvel obviously has uh, Marvel Studios, I should say, has has um, you know proven pretty adept at like taking things that they love from the comics and you know mixing their own stuff into it, taking small elements of storylines and and sort of putting their own spins on it. So maybe we'll see something similar to that, but not an exact uh, copy of that storyline in there as well. I, I would sort of put more money on you know uh, more of an adaptation than like a, a direct. Um, you know, a beat for beat sort of recreation or something like that. But uh, yeah, we'll have to see what happens. I think all of us are, are really looking forward to that movie, especially after the glory that was Thor Ragnarok. Um, let's talk, let's jump over to the Star Wars universe for a second. So uh, Disney Plus has this Cassian Andor series that uh, Diego Luna is coming back to reprise his role as the rebel spy, and uh, Alan Tudyk is coming back to play the droid 
friend K2SO. These characters appeared in Rogue One, a Star Wars story, which came out in 2016. That movie had a very troubled production and was, uh, I guess, reportedly saved by Tony Gilroy, who's the director of movies like Michael Clayton. And uh, he has been hired to come back into this universe and write the pilot for this new Cassian Andor show and direct multiple episodes of the show. So I'm wondering what you guys think about this because I think all of us have sort of like varying degrees of uh, interest and appreciation for Rogue One. So what do you guys think about um, Disney bringing Tony Gilroy back into this this galaxy for this live action show? Um, HT, what do you think? I mean, I guess it makes sense to keep that tonal and narrative consistency because Tony Gilroy did help bring Cassie and Andor to the big screen in Rogue One. That being said, I did not like Rogue One. I thought it was kind of a narrative and structural mess. Uh, but um, yeah, we'll see. I, it, it is t- uh, TV, which is a totally different medium than than um, uh, feature films mm-hmm. and. I think that perhaps the way that Rogue One was structured, it could make sense as a TV series. I'm just kind of spitballing here. I, I don't really know how it will work out, but um, I have my reservations is what I'll say. Yeah, we know it's a prequel, I should say. I don't think I mentioned that before. It's a prequel that uh, involves Cassian's character before he gets you know fully involved, or at least before the the uh, alliance sort of revs up to the point that we saw it in Rogue One. Um, and, and before I, I throw it to Brad, I, I want to mention a quote that Gilroy said uh, around the time that uh, right after Rogue One came out, he talked about the reason that he thought that um, that he sort of thrived under the, the stressful conditions of Uh, putting that movie back on track he said that was my superpower i've never been interested in star wars ever so i had no reverence for it whatsoever i was unafraid about that and they were in such a swamp they were in so much terrible terrible trouble that all you could do was improve their position so that was him talking about his work on rogue one but brad i'm interested you know as a a massive star wars fan yourself um what did you think about rogue one what are you what are your thoughts about tony gilroy as a filmmaker and then do you think that somebody who's never been interested in star wars coming into you know back into this universe is a uh an interesting choice uh i enjoyed rogue one for the most part i do think that it had it was a little bit messy here and there and uh definitely clunky in some parts especially the beginning with all the location hopping and trying to establish so much in such a short period of time uh but i I liked rogue one overall for the uh for the most part as for the cassian andor series um i think that there's some potential to do something interesting here that we haven't seen in star wars because i think one of my favorite things um in rogue one which is that's kind of a grim thing is that when we meet cassian andor he unfortunately has to kill somebody who is like spying uh for the rebel alliance in order to save himself and uh, escape the empire there are stormtroopers nearby and it kind of gives you an a a look at the darker side of what it means to be a part of the rebel alliance and how dangerous it can be and the decisions that you have to make if you're going to you know be a spy when you're part of, you know, uh, a resistance to, you know, the Galactic Empire. And so with the Cassian Andor series, I think we have the potential to get a series that is a lot more about uh, intrigue and spycraft within the Star Wars galaxy. And that's something that we haven't seen much of yet. 
Yeah, for sure. And and I should also mention that Stephen Schiff, who worked on The Americans, is the showrunner and, and remains the showrunner on this project. But Gilroy has just been brought in, like I said, to write the pilot and then uh, direct multiple episodes of the show. So I think that spycraft thing is certainly, um, you know, uh, the direction that they're heading with this. I, I'm personally, I'm sort of interested to see what a, I guess, for lack of a better word, a pure Tony Gilroy um, Star Wars uh, property looks like because and obviously like Schiff like I just said is the showrunner so ultimately you know he makes the final call in the stuff but Gilroy is like a spectacular you know he, he sort of uh, created the playbook for the Bourne series um, he's really good at stepping into uh, fictional worlds and world building and all of that kind of stuff so I feel like he is going to be an, in- an interesting guy to tell this story and I'm curious you know how much of Rogue One was him fixing a mess and how much of this show is going to sort of retain that same uh, tone or if it, if we're going to feel like this is, um, you know, something that, that has a little bit more of a, a coherent, <laughs> um, uh, I guess, authorship to it um, w- with only one person writing it, hopefully, and, and unless there's some sort of crazy problem. I mean, that would be super ironic if there was some crazy problem behind the scenes on this with Tony Gilroy, and I, they had to bring somebody else in to, to fix this thing. But um, yeah, so we're not entirely sure when this Cassian Andor show is going to be debuting on Disney+. Plus. Uh, Variety says uh, that Disney previously has indicated that the show is going to be com- coming on sometime in 2021. I don't remember them ever actually saying that, but uh, who knows. Anyway, sometime soon. So let's jump from Star Wars to The Matrix 4. Uh, yesterday we talked about a piece of breaking casting news that happened as we were recording the podcast. And uh, I guess later last night, we or, or uh, yeah, later in the day yesterday, we heard that another cast member has been, uh, or, or I guess is in talks to join the Matrix 4. H.C., what do we know? Yes. Jada Pinkett Smith is in talks to reprise her role as Captain Niobe in the Matrix 4, uh, which would make her one of the returning stars, including Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris and Yaya Abdul-Mateen II are two new cast members uh, to The Matrix 4, which will be directed by Lana Wachowski from a screenplay by Alexander Heeman and David Mitchell. So we don't know yet what the extent of um, Niobe's role will be in this film. She appeared in The Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions. And um, the deadline, which broke the story, reports that it's actually not a done deal yet. So this is still in discussions. But it would be interesting to see how her role plays out because uh, her character was notably linked to Morpheus romantically in the past. So I wonder if the absence of Lawrence Fishburne in the casting news so far has something to do with her return. Maybe there is, maybe it's going to be about finding um, Morpheus as a, I kind of theorized before. So who knows, but um, yeah, this will be her return to the series after last appearing in Matrix Revolutions. That would be really interesting if they, if like Morpheus was missing and it was sort of like a Luke Skywalker type of situation where they, they have to find him because the the first movie is about Morpheus finding Neo. And so it would be like an mm-hmm. interesting sort of reflection there. Um, Brad, what do you think about, uh, about Jada Pinkett Smith coming back as Niobe in Matrix 4? Is this just, um, you know, par for the course for you or excited about this or what? Uh, you know, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about The Matrix 4, just because, uh, you know, even though The Matrix Revolutions was a disappointment as far as a conclusion to the trilogy, uh, I still love the first two Matrix movies. I think Re- Reloaded gets a bad rep simply because of how Revolutions ended things. Um, but if, you know, if, you know, one half of the Wachowskis thinks that this idea is good enough to come back behind the camera, 
and and make the movie, then I'm very interested to see what they have uh, in store here. And uh, everybody that was uh, you know in the original Matrix trilogy was great, and Jada Pinkett Smith uh, definitely had uh, a couple of badass moments of her own. So it'll be, it'll be great to see her you know back in action in that way, especially if this you know story is really is about trying to track down Morpheus. Yeah, I I you know I have not watched the Matrix sequels in a long long time because I didn't love them when I saw them theatrically, but I remember playing Enter the Matrix, the video game, and Niobe had a big role in that. Um, so. Uh, I, that's sort of like, even though I mean she like originated in the the movies, that's sort of my primary association with that character. So I wonder if they're gonna incorporate any of the elements of the video game or like um, you know the animatrix or any of that stuff because the Wachowskis had like a, a really immense amount of control over that entire sort of um, transmedia empire that the Matrix uh, sort of carved out at that time. So. Um, very curious to see like how much of the mythology is going to be at play in the sequel and yeah obviously plot stuff and, and things like that too so we'll keep you guys posted when we learn more about that in the meantime let's move on to a new series by uh, ordered by hbo max um <laughs> brad why don't you just tell us about this one i don't even know how to set this up yeah so uh grease is the word again <laughs> um, <laughs> there we go <laughs> yeah. uh hbo max has ordered a musical series spinoff called Grease, Rydell High, that will take place at the high school that the um, movie Grease, which was based on a 1971 stage musical, took place. Uh, it will still take place in the 1950s. Um, it will feature characters that we already know and a lot of new characters as well. And it will have uh, musical numbers that features songs from that period in the 1950s as well as original songs. Uh, and the official press release says it's the peer pressures of high school, the horrors of puberty, and the roller coaster of life in middle America with a modern sensibility that will bring it to life for today's musical lovers. Uh, cool. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I think the biggest thing is I don't even know who this show is for because anybody who loves Grease pretty much loves Grease because of the original cast, especially, you know, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, uh, and even, you know, Stocker Channing as Rizzo and Jeff Conaway as Kanicki. So, if they're not coming back in any capacity as those characters, because it will still include some of those characters at the same time period, and obviously those actors can't play those roles anymore, mm-hmm. that then there's no real nostalgic appeal for the for the show. And then I'm I'm not sure I don't really see, hear any kids talking about how much they love Greece uh, today. So I just I don't know just what what the show is doing. Even weirder is that HBO Max announced this show. But they haven't named a single executive producer or writer who is behind this show. They only named the companies that are producing it. Huh. So, so it's the, we have no idea what to expect from this. That is very strange. Um, I think you bring up a good point. I'm, I'm wondering what the um, the younger generations, generations younger than us, think about Greece because it was a big deal when I was growing up. But I'm also, you know, I sort of ran in like. A, I studied like some drama stuff and film stuff. And so, you know, being in that world, I, I feel like it's big for like a musical theater kids and stuff still. Yeah, maybe, it, but had, I... it had a resurgence in the 90s because they I think they had like a big anniversary screening that happened. Because I remember uh, going to see it in theaters with my mom. Yeah. HC, you're a little bit younger than us. Do you have any association with Greece at all? Yeah, Grease was in the rotate regular rotation of movies I watched when I was young. I wonder if it's just one of those movies that becomes so classic and gets rerun on, on cable so many times that people just have a fondness for it no matter which generation because 
I don't remember how I watched I watched it. I think I watched it on TV maybe or I had the DVD. Um, but it's just one of those movies that I was always familiar with and that I think in like in school, in chorus, we would sing songs from Greece too. I was in choir, so of course. Um, yeah, it was a, it, I feel like it's a movie that is universal, but I can't speak for the younger like Gen Z mm-hmm. uh, generation. But have, being so familiar with it, despite like kind of almost missing that 90s resurgence, because I don't, I don't think I ever saw it in theaters, I do think that there is something to be said about Greece just being still a big hit throughout the generations. Like there was that Grease Live um, production on NBC, I think. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that or Fox or one of those. Yeah, Fox. yeah, yeah one of those. Fox. Oh, Fox, and that was actually like pretty well watched. So I don't know. I think it's because um, it's just it's a good classic high school film. Yeah, and I guess like a lot of um, high schools around the country still, you know, perform it as like their, you know, their drama clubs, musicals and stuff like that, too. So I I guess it it has sort of never actually gone away. So, um, yeah, maybe this will have a a larger audience than we think. Uh, Brad, do you think that there's any chance that they get any of the original cast to come back and play different characters like John Travolta cameos as the new principal or something crazy like that? You know, well, that's the thing is like it's. The fact that the, it's set during the same time and will feature some of the the characters that we already know kind of makes it hard to to do that in a way, because I don't know. I, I, it would feel weird to me. I think that if they had someone like John Travolta playing, you know, making a cameo or supporting character like that, knowing that they're still. Danny Zuko somewhere else, right? Like and, you know, theoretically, they would be able to cross paths in that universe or something. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I don't know. It's it's definitely not not impossible. Um, but I, I think I think it would be weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on to uh, Studio Ghibli. They, uh, HC, what's going on here? We we know that though their movies are not available easily on uh, or actually at all on any digital, um, you know, download services, any streaming platforms, anything like that. Why is that? What's going on? What, what's the latest here? So this became a topic of discussion recently because of Disney Plus's uh, mountain of titles that they announced recently uh, that will be appearing when the streaming service launches this November. Um, And people noticed that Studio Ghibli was not among those titles. The main reason being that Disney doesn't have the distribution rights to Studio Ghibli films anymore, despite um, having a deal that ran from 1996 until 2017, in which they distributed and dubbed all of the Studio Ghibli hits in the U.S. Um, they The rights have lapsed and actually have, are under G-Kids now, which is a New York-based indie animation distributor. Um, but G-Kids has confirmed that not only will it not be appearing on Disney Plus, um, Studio Ghibli films will not be appearing on any streaming service for that matter. So Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, or any forthcoming service like HBO Max or Apple TV Plus. Um, and that's because they uh, want to preserve the theatrical integrity of, or the theatrical, theatrical experience of the film. So in a statement to Polygon, which first reported this piece, G Kids said, Studio Ghibli does not make their films available digitally, whether for download or streaming anywhere in the world. They continue to believe that presentation is vital and particularly appreciate opportunities for audiences to experience the films together in a theatrical setting. Um, G Kids does have recurring um, limited theatrical reruns of 
studio Ghibli films, they, you might be familiar with something called Ghibli Fest, which they do uh, in concurrence with fandom events. They have been doing films like Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, House Within Castle. Um, there are some upcoming ones, I think, for like the tale of Princess Kaguya as well. Hmm. Uh, and they also have released some Blu-ray editions of films like Nausicaa and the, uh, and the Valley of the Wind. But um, they, yeah, they're there aren't any plans for now from GKids to put them on any streaming services because they're trying to respect the um, intention of Ghibli just to keep that theatrical or home video experience. So I have to ask you about this because on one hand, I respect the hell out of this. I, I respect mm -hmm. the fact that these movies have never been made available digitally and they're really um you know artistically driven here it seems like they're, they're they really want to drive people to see the movies in the way that they want to see them but at the same time like there is a part of me that wonders how um i don't know how, how many people are not um being shown these movies or you know because the access is not there um because they're they're sort of forcing you to either find a blu-ray or um, you know, go out to a theater to see one of these Fathom Events screenings. How many people are not being um, indoctrinated into the world of Miyazaki and all these other filmmakers? You know, is that trade-off worth it? What do you think about that? There's far too many, I'm sure, who haven't been given access to these films because, you know, Blu-rays, DVDs can be expensive. I have never had that problem because I do have all of the Ghibli films under, in my collection, but uh, it does feel very limiting that the that they're not really available unless you go to the theater for like the specific amount of time or you um, buy the DVD or Blu-ray on um, for your home video. So it, it is kind of, it is unfortunate, I think, um, and I respect it too because I do think that uh, it is very much to the wish of Hayao Miyazaki, who has never really been um, keen on new sort of services like this. And he has been uh, burned many times by Hollywood uh, studios and distributors. So I'm sure he's just wary of these kind of things in general, mm -hmm. uh, as well as like, you know, that dreaded autoplay function that happens. And I do think that Studio Ghibli films shouldn't be relegated to background noise status. But it is unfortunate. I do think that there should be some way that it make it easier to access these films. Um, GKIS does like a great job at bringing them to theaters. Uh, but I do know that Toonami, for example, used to have a Miyazaki month block that they can no longer do because of these more tighter restrictions. And um, I wonder if there's a way to, to you know, expose kids more to these really wonderful films that are just so different from, than what they're used to in like Western animation. So yeah, I don't know. It's like a, it's kind of, it is nice because it does kind of preserve that integrity and uh, make it feel like a more special experience and, and, and everything. But um, yeah, streaming just is how thing, people do things these days right. and how families operate. So um, it does feel like a, a, people are missing out on it because of this. But I will say when I saw Spirited Away in theaters with subtitles, there were a lot of kids there and a lot of families. So I guess there's you know some hope. Yeah, I'm so torn about this because I've been trying to, you know, watch some of these Miyazaki movies because I've never really had the chance to catch or, or, or uh, taken the time to catch up with them before. And a couple of them I've had to, you know, get through Blu-ray and stuff. And then only um, uh, The Castle of Cagliostro is streaming on Netflix right now. And that's not even a Ghibli movie. That's just Miyazaki's first um, directorial, you know, his directorial debut. Um, but it was so great to be able to just like 
scroll through all the crap on Netflix and find this diamond in the rough and be like, holy crap, this movie's incredible. So I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm very torn about this. Brad, what do you think about the idea of, of you know, specifically holding these films back and not making them available to stream? Do you think that that trade-off is worth it to sort of um, create a special experience for people, you know, if they want to see these movies? I mean, yes and no, but at the same time, it's, I don't know. I feel like you should want your like your people to see your movie as much as possible and make it as accessible as possible. And so while audiences can have the option of watching, you know, movies from Netflix and Hulu in environments that are not preferred, you know, you don't you don't no one really wants anyone to see their movie for the first time on a phone in a subway. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I, I can understand, you know, wanting to maintain the purity of the cinematic experience of it all. But, you know, but at the same time, it's like so many people want to watch these movies and have them be easily accessible. I just feel like it's, you know, it's a no brainer to to allow them to do that. Yeah, I guess it's uh, that that's their uh, prerogative. But uh, I wonder if they'll end up budging on that as the world continues to move, you know, more to, to really almost leave theatrical behind as the the dominant method of of watching stuff and like you know move in further and and deeper into a streaming world i wonder if they'll end up changing their minds about that or if that will just make them dig their heels in more and and um you know stick to their guns as it were so uh we'll see we'll see about that uh it looks like we have uh yet again another bit of breaking news regarding the matrix 4 oh boy all right so what do we got (laughs) Uh, Iron Fist actress Jessica Henwick uh, is in talks for a lead role in the movie. Um, apparently, she won the role in uh, as part of a, basically an audition process, according to Deadline. Um, apparently, it sounds like uh, Lana Wachowski wants to have a female um, character that is kind of like Neo at the forefront of the new movie. Hmm. So that makes me wonder if maybe Keanu Reeves uh, as Neo maybe has like taken up the post of what Morpheus was in the mm-hmm. original trilogy as kind of a guide for a, for a new character to step up and become the one. Uh, and maybe the, if, if that, you know, the possible storyline of Morpheus missing or needing to be tracked down is, um, you know, ties into that somehow. So I, correct me if I'm wrong. And maybe you guys have seen the sequels more recently than I have, but isn't, isn't it revealed later in the, in one of those two sequels that um, this is not the first time that, uh, this story has been told like you know neo is not the first one there's been like thousands of iterations of him or something like that in the in the past yeah. is that right yes if i remember correctly the architect says that this is the that this uh will have been the sixth time that the matrix has been rebooted okay all right so i don't know where i got that thousand number from but yes okay so so yeah i guess that makes sense then if this is maybe like a new rebooted version of the matrix for jessica henwick's character to be the new the one in this thing. Um, HT, did you watch any of Iron Fist? I did not. <laughs> okay. I had um, no interest in it. Brad, did you? I remember seeing her in Game of Thrones, though, I think. Yeah, she had a very small role as, uh, I think it was Nymeria Sand, one of the, the mm-hmm. sand snakes on Game of Thrones. And that entire Dorn subplot on that show was just completely botched. And, and those characters didn't really have much to do, even though they have yeah. way more to do in the books. So yeah. it, it was that's a, a tough beat that's for her. One of, the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one, one of my gripes with the show, because I love the sand snakes, sand snakes in the book. But yes, she seems great. I haven't seen her in Iron Fist, but I did see the Defenders. And she was impressive in that, I think, because she had a pretty major role I, uh, in Defenders, if I remember 
Um, Brad, did you watch Iron Fist at all? I never watched a single episode of any of the Marvel shows on Netflix. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I almost want to congratulate you. That seems like, That's like an accomplishment. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I did not watch Iron Fist but or The Defenders, but I, I do remember hearing good things about um, Jessica Henwick's character in that show. She was like the sort of saving grace. Observing it from afar, that's sort of the perception that I got was like everybody wanted her character to be Iron Fist instead of the bland guy who was at the center of the show. So, um, you know, have assuming that she actually did like a bunch of martial arts and stuff in that show, which that show was a martial arts series, so I assume that she did, um, maybe that, that makes sense for her here, uh, you know, to, to jump into a, a martial arts heavy world like the Matrix. So, uh, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll just have to keep you guys posted when we hear more about like what this character is going to be and, and what the actual plot of this film is going to be, because it's all seemed to be uh, very secretive right now in this early stage of it. So uh, stay tuned for more on that. And finally, I want to bring on a slash film writer, Chris Evangelista, to talk about one last news story. Chris, how's it going? All right. All right. So tell us about uh, Edward Norton, who has a new movie coming out. And he, you know, we were talking recently on the podcast about Martin Scorsese and his comments about superhero movies and, and theater going experience and what is cinema and all this stuff. Edward Norton seems to be sort of weighing in on this a little bit. Uh, what does Eddie Norton have to say? Uh, yeah, old Eddie Norton had uh, a comment about what exactly is is quote unquote ruining movies. Um, seems like every day or at least every month, there's a new story about something that's ruining movies these days. And a lot of filmmakers, like Steven Spielberg, is probably the the most uh, prominent. Think it's it's streaming. It's the it's the world of streaming which is taking away from the the sacred theatrical experience and. Edward Norton does not think that at all. According to him, he says, quote, it's the theater chains that are destroying the theatrical experience. Um, and he goes on to say, you know, theater chains are showing films, you know, in in low light and the sound isn't mixed right. And basically you're not getting the presentation you're supposed to get. And most theater chains like, you know, let's just let's just make up one like, you know, AMC um, don't <laughs> don't care about <laughs> the theatrical experience. And that's really what's what's ruining movies, not Netflix. And he even goes on to defend Netflix in a way by saying Netflix is giving lots of money to filmmakers like, you know, Alfonso Cuaron, who, you know, to make Roma, who wouldn't normally get that much money to make you know, a, a black and white foreign art movie. So. You know, I, I and I, I, you know, tend to agree with Edward Norton here. You know, no, no disrespect to Steven Spielberg, who is obviously a better filmmaker than Edward Norton. But I don't really see streaming as the boogeyman. I tend to think, you know, movie theaters have gotten a lot worse, you know, depending on where you are. You know, if you if you're lucky enough to have, you know, like a draft house near you then yes, the movie theater experience is still kind of good. But if you're like me and you live in the suburbs and all you have is stuff like AMC, then the theater experience really is just a pain in the ass. You you get low quality. You get people who don't really care. I mean, most, most theaters, especially chains, they don't even have projectionists anymore. You know, it's all automated. So there's no one really checking this stuff. So I, I really do think he has a point here. This seems like, you know, a crystallization of a conversation that we've been having for years at this point. And Chris, I just wonder if you think, that, you know, we've been thinking about this idea for a long, long time. Do, have you have you thought about what a possible solution could be? Is it just 
people like Edward Norton speaking up about this and, and you know, <laughs> I hate to use the phrase, but like raising awareness about like the the shittiness of the the uh, theatrical experience and like the presentation and stuff. And like maybe if enough famous people complain about it and directors and stuff start, you know, bitching about it in public, then maybe the studios will or the, the exhibitors will actually have to do something about it. Or do you think there's like a better solution than that? Or is that all we have? I don't think there really is a solution. I don't think theater chains are really going to listen. I mean, AMC, they're <laughs> instead of taking things to heart, they're just like, oh, we're going to launch our own streaming service. Like, that's their big solution. And they're not even streaming, you know, theatrical movies. They're just streaming whatever, everything else that's available to stream. So there, I don't think there really is a solution here. The only solution is, like, smaller theaters, like, I mean, Draft House isn't exactly small anymore. They're they're growing every day. But stuff like this, like quote-unquote boutique theaters where the experience actually is important to the people who are running it, that's the only real solution here. As long as there are, st- there are chains like AMC, you're, you're, you're just going to be stuck with, for lack of a better word, shit. Yeah. Um, Brad, HC, do you guys have any thoughts on this? Like, uh, let's just, let's operate under the assumption that there are always going to be um, major theater chains in huge cities, right? Let's let's pretend that the AMC in Times Square or whatever is never going to just shut down and go away. But do you think that maybe, you know, in five, ten years, if streaming continues to grow as it is, that, like, theaters in the suburbs are are going to go away and, and are, I guess the mega chains and, and people will have to rely on these sort of more boutique style theaters. Like what, what, what do you guys envision as the future of this and maybe a possible solution to this problem? Honestly, it feels like, I mean, and this is something that Spielberg uh, and George Lucas said a long time ago when they, they, they were on a panel at USC for something, I think. And I feel like we're, we're slowly moving towards a, an era where people will pay a higher premium ticket price to see big movies like Avengers Endgame or Star Wars, you know, um, in theaters, and then more of the lower budget movies that people are, are, you know, starting to not really turn out for as much anymore, will be released, you know, in very limited uh, theaters, and then and maybe even just straight to VOD or streaming or anything like that, you know, because. More and more uh, now, audiences are turning away from movie theaters, whether it's because of high ticket and concession prices or just because the home theater is slowly starting to become as advanced as, you know, uh, a big screen theater. So, you know, I, I think eventually audiences will, won't want to pay a ticket price for a movie they don't necessarily need to see on the biggest screen possible with the most sophisticated sound system. And they'll want to watch, you know, something that is more dramatic, more... Uh, focus on just people talking in rooms and and that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, on, on their home theater. AC, do you think that there's uh, the chance that let's just let's we, since we've already mentioned AMC, let's just use them as an example that AMC um, I don't know makes some sort of drastic decision here. They they see the writing on the wall and they say, okay, all of our tickets, uh, all of our ticket prices for every show across the board is going to be, I don't know, 10 bucks or, or $8 or whatever, like the national average is or something. Um, and and maybe that would be a significant enough drop in, in uh, the ticket price for that um, element of the decision-making process to, uh, to be a non-factor for people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like maybe um, 
if they sort of set the stage and and take the initiative and you know they're the first out of the gate to make like a big change like this do you think that that something like a lower ticket price across the board could be enough to get people over the hump and you know coming back out to theaters even though the theatrical uh, presentation is not exactly um, up to snuff I mean, I think you could see with the early days of MoviePass that people do want to go to theaters. It is the price right. that a, a lot of the times that holds them back. And the fact that you had a subscription service that let you see however many, however many movies you want for $10 a month, it, that, that's why MoviePass crashed and burned so quickly because it, ha- it was in such high demand because it was such a great deal and people really did want to see these movies for so cheap. Um, but I do think it's funny that what Chris is saying is basically there is no perfect movie-going experience under capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, he's probably right. Uh, I think there's credence to the whole argument that movie theaters are destroying movies. I don't think it's they're the one and only thing to blame. Um, I do wonder if there's any way to improve apart from, you know, making pick tick ticket prices lower, which probably won't happen, or just, you know, getting more of a better, getting a better theatrical experience from more um, niche uh, movie theater boutique, um, boutiques or whatever uh, yeah. Chris was saying. Um, I don't know. I mean, I also have my own uh, feelings against streaming, too. I do think that they're not completely... Uh, blameless in this whole movies are being destroyed thing. Uh, it's complicated. I might my thought is just I don't really know. Is I I don't have a problem with a lot of movie theaters I go to, but I have been to a lot of crappy New York theaters where it's just bad. But usually it doesn't totally ruin my movie going experience. Yeah, and the reason I, I mentioned the price drop thing was because you know most theaters or maybe all theaters make a majority of their money through concessions anyway. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you know, getting you across the threshold and into the building is their biggest um, obstacle, I think. And then once that happens, they're making most of their money at the, at the concession stand. So if they were to drop prices drastically, maybe that, that would be enough to, you know, create like an influx of, of new customers. But I guess that still doesn't solve the problem of crappy theatrical presentations, which is like where this whole thing started. So uh, and I go, I, apparently it's too much to ask to have them actually invest in creating, um, you know, a better presentation for everybody and actually like enforcing things like don't talk and don't text in the movie. I think they're so scared of like, um, you know, uh, alienating younger generations who are on their phones all the time that they're just in this like stasis where they don't know what to do with these exhibitors. So uh, I don't know, I guess this, this conversation is going to continue for probably years to come. So, um, I don't know. I was hoping that, that we could solve it right here. Guys, yes. but I, I, I don't it think we did it. So. Just the entire movie industry going down the toilet bowl is like solved here in Slashville. Um, All right. So let's uh, let's bring us to the end of this episode. Um, Before we do that, Chris, I want to give you another opportunity to plug your 31 days of streaming horror column. What uh, what movie did you write about for today? Uh, Today I wrote about The Witch in the Window, which I think is one of those movies that no one has seen and they should because it's super creepy. I've never even heard of this. (laughs) Yes, that's that's my goal with this column to highlight not the same old, same old, like everyone has seen The Exorcist or knows about The Exorcist. So I'm trying to pick things that you might not be familiar with. And I'm hope, I hope I'm succeeding. 
All right, so I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, Chris, tell people where they can find more of your work online. Uh, Slashfilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at Evangelista 413 Brad, how about you? At Ethan underscore Anderton online, always writing at Slashfilm. And my podcast, Go Flicks Yourself. It's stupid. Listen to it. It's on iTunes and other podcast places. <laughs> High praise from one of the co-hosts. <laughs> um, HC, where can people find your stuff? You can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. I am also at SlashFilm.com. You can find my stuff there. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. And you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Do us a favor. Actually, visit SlashFilm.com and read the stuff that we write there. That would be great if you're a longtime listener of the show. Uh, SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com and make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That does help us out a ton. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.